Hi, it's Mina Kimes, host of the ESPN Daily Podcast. Wake up to the best story you'll hear all day. 20 minutes a day, five days a week, where you get an inside look at the most interesting stories at ESPN, as told by the top reporters and insiders on the planet. The breaking news of SportsCenter, with a deep dive storytelling of 30 for 30. Today's episode is one I thought you'd especially like. Please listen and subscribe to ESPN Daily, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hi, this is Mina. We'll bring you our usual in-depth storytelling today, but first, we want to take the time to remember a sports icon. Longtime NBA Commissioner David Stern passed away on Wednesday after suffering a brain hemorrhage. He was 77 years old. Here's Jeremy Schapp with a remembrance of the man who left an indelible mark on the sport of basketball. In his 30 years as commissioner, David Stern made it possible for the NBA to scramble from the brink of bankruptcy and irrelevance to a position of global significance unthinkable in the dark days of the late 1970s and early 1980s. When the league was beset by drug problems, teams were going bankrupt, and the finals were on tape delay. That stunning reversal of fortune is why Stern will be remembered as perhaps the greatest leader of any sports league ever. Of course, the league's rebirth can't be attributed solely to Stern's savvy and toughness. It wasn't Stern, after all, who fashioned from clay the transcendent Larry Bird-Magic Johnson rivalry. It wasn't Stern who imbued Michael Jordan with his gifts, either. But make no mistake, there might be no other sports executive ever who so adeptly utilized the tools at his disposal. No other commissioner who so clearly recognized and exploited the resources of his sport. With Stern in charge, the NBA called itself fantastic. But it was really a star factory. The league marketed its stars to the hilt. And no league ever better mastered the art of marketing than David Stern's NBA. At its inception, years before the advent of the internet, not to mention Twitter or Instagram, the slam dunk contest was a phenomenon. A must-see event created by Stern's lieutenant, Rick Welts. People too young to have seen Jordan versus Dominique in the heyday of the competition can hardly fathom how big a deal it was. Then, in 1992, there was the Dream Team, the ultimate expression of Stern's strategic thinking, of his desire to make the league a global brand. With Jordan and Magic and Barkley in Olympic uniforms, the world was suddenly safe for Stern's unique brand of basketball diplomacy and capitalism. Soon, the entire planet would be turned into a marketplace for NBA TV rights and eventually the jerseys of players such as LeBron James. Ten years after the first Dream Team won gold in Barcelona, Yao Ming was the top overall pick in the draft. This was not coincidence. In its own way, Yao's arrival was a milestone on the same order of magnitude as the Magic Bird rivalry and the rise of Michael Jordan. There was a good reason why Stern had a seat on the Council on Foreign Relations. In terms of his management style, Stern was not a man to be trifled with. He could be intimidating, demanding, imperious, in fact, all of the above. But he could also be charming and refreshingly blunt and honest even on the subject of the owners for whom he worked. For example, when the New York Knicks lost a court battle about sexual harassment in their front office. It demonstrates that they're not a model of... uh, intelligent management. Of course, under Stern, who reigned for so long, there were many challenges and controversies. 
Even as total revenue and player salaries skyrocketed, there were too many lockouts. There was the infamous Pacers-Pistons brawl in Detroit, which exposed a yawning disconnect in the relationship between players and fans. Tim Donaghy, a veteran NBA referee, went to prison on gambling-related charges. But in the end, David Stern will be remembered for all the ways in which he elevated the game, enriching his owners and the players, popularizing the league in places where it had been virtually unknown. He also helped create the WNBA and championed it. Back when Stern took over, it would have seemed at best unlikely that the NBA would become a global behemoth. It's perhaps the ultimate testament to David Stern's vision that now it all seems to have been inevitable. We'll be back in a moment. So I was actually sitting at lunch with one of my best friends, Skip Trey Montana, who played football at Miami of Ohio. And he tells me, I have this story that you have to tell. Sarah Spain is a writer for ESPNW and the host of the podcast, That's What She Said. You're not going to believe it. It's so incredible. And proceeds to tell me the story about Dylan McCullough, who was a teammate of his at Miami of Ohio. And within the sort of five to ten minute synapsis, I've got chills everywhere. I'm on the verge of tears. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this story is so amazing. He said, okay, you got to take the story to ESPN. We realized that E60 would be the right fit. And man, was I lucky to get to tell it. When you watch the Kansas City Chiefs in the playoffs, take a minute to look at the sidelines for a man named Dylan McCullough. He's the Chiefs' running backs coach, but he's also at the center of a story that's one of the most jaw-dropping tales ESPN has ever told. Today, Sarah Spain tells us about McCullough's search for his biological parents, a journey with a twist you have to hear to believe. I'm Mina Kimes. It's Thursday, January 2nd. This is ESPN Daily, presented by Dell Small Business. Sarah, the story you wrote about Dylan McCullough is incredible. He was born in 1972. He was raised not knowing anything about his biological parents. I was born in Pennsylvania. But I was adopted in Ohio, in Youngstown. My mom said, you were at an orphanage. She said, you were the only black boy there, only black kid there. What was his upbringing like? Pretty tough, actually. He was originally adopted by a woman named Adele Comer. He had the biggest, prettiest, darkest eyes. I fell in love. (laughs) That was my son. She was married to A.C. McCullough, who was a popular radio DJ in Youngstown, Ohio. Within two years, A.C. decided he didn't want to be married to Adele anymore, didn't want to really have much of a relationship with either the biological child he'd had with Adele or Dylan, their adopted son. And so they saw him very rarely after that. The person whose last name that I have, I had, you know, limited to no involvement with him, really. Do you notice a big difference between when he was there and when he was gone? Just kind of financially. Me and my mom was really, she was doing the best she could, you know, but, I mean, 
We didn't have a phone. A lot of times the electric was off, the utilities were off. So he he had a pretty rough, and Youngstown at that time especially was a pretty rough neighborhood, so he did his best to try to stay out of the trouble that engulfed a lot of the other young boys there. Is the staying out of trouble part what got him into football? Yeah, he got into it at a young age, and then the more he got into football, the more he really thought of it as an escape from the troubles at home, from the issues in Youngstown at the time. Kind of take my anger and frustrations out. You didn't think about the electric is off, you know. Dylan McCullough with many honors after the season this year. First team on Mahoney Valley Conference. Good luck to you in the future. It was during that college recruiting process that he met someone who would go on to become sort of a father figure to him, correct? Yeah, so it's interesting. Dylan at first thought maybe he'd go to a small school or maybe go to the Navy, and then his senior year, he got thrust into the running back position where he thrilled college recruiters. A handful of offers from right there locally, Youngstown State, Akron, Kent. Then Sherman Smith, the former NFL player who was now a running backs coach at Miami of Ohio, really stood out to him. Sherman Smith was originally from Youngstown and had bought a tricked-out car that formerly belonged to Sir Mix-a-Lot, which is a detail that did not make the <laughs> final story. Incredible. I was sitting in English class. We looked down, and it was this real nice car down there. It was the Mercedes, and it was hooked up. Candy apple red, tan interior, and had gold rims on it. The guy turned around and said, I'm Sherman Smith. I'm the running back coach at Miami University. Dylan, he had been through a lot. He was a tough guy. I knew that he was adopted and, you know, and he wasn't looking for excuses not to succeed. He was looking for reasons to succeed. Coach Smith, there was just something about him. I mean, between just my interaction with him directly and then obviously my mom's interaction, I need to be around this type of person. Coach Smith was hard not to love. He was just a gentleman and uh, he was very attentive and respectful to me. They connected immediately. It was a great relationship, and it was something that Dylan desperately needed. For the most part, he had grown up without a father figure, and here was this guy who proved by his very existence and his lifestyle what you could achieve. He came from Youngstown as well. He had made it to the NFL. He was now coaching. And not only for Dylan, but for everybody in that room, especially that running backs, fullbacks room, they kind of considered him a father figure, and he would even say... The line I would tell the players, I said, you know, you may not be looking for a father, but I'm going to treat you like you're my sons. And Dylan's just one of those guys. I loved his attitude. Ran like his hair was on fire. Just ran through a hit for an extra seven. I wanted people to respect, you know, my game and who I was take advantage of this opportunity. And that's what I did. How does Dylan's playing career end up playing out? Really well. He became a Hall of Famer at Miami of Ohio. He had 36 touchdowns, had a school record in rushing yards, and was predicted to be drafted, although 
was surprised not to get the call during the draft, was invited to a couple workouts, and ended up signing with the Bengals. And preseason looked fantastic. He was actually leading the NFL in, in preseason rushing. So McCullough has a little running room. Finally knocked down by Stephen Boyce. And then a disastrous knee injury. McCullough's down on the field. He's hurting. Ripped up everything. And that really ended up sending him on kind of a sad chase of a couple different opportunities in the NFL, the XFL, knee surgeries, Canada, all in pursuit of the pro football dreams that he had. But unfortunately, that that knee injury and, and the things that resulted from it sort of kept him from ever getting that. Dylan's playing career ends in the late 90s, but he ends up coaching football. And around 2014, he lands a position with the Seattle Seahawks. How did that come about? You know, now that he's decided that the coaching path is his passion, he decides to reach out to his former coach, Sherman Smith, and ask him for tips. They would just call each other on the phone every once in a while, Dylan saying, I'm now getting into coaching and I would love to come check out what you're doing. Being in touch with him, this opportunity arrived where Sherman could welcome Dylan out to Seattle to do a coaching internship with the Seahawks. We came out and did the internship, and I remember, you know, he's my guy. And so I said, man, you got individual drills. You do that. That's your drill every day. And guys loved them. They absolutely loved them. Man, I wanted to make sure I represent going in here talking, you know, to the man that recruited me. And then for him to affirm, like, man, you're doing a good job. He made sure he shared that with people, too, like, hey, and this, this guy a good coach. In the meantime, Dylan's become a family man. He and his wife have the first of their four children in 1999. How would you say he approached fatherhood? It was really important to him to be present, right? He had essentially been raised without real role models. He had been abandoned by the birth father by not having a relationship. And then A.C. McCullough had left when he was two years old, so sort of doubly rejected he knew he didn't want to do that to his own son. And what was interesting is when he was growing up, he had maybe asked about adoption once or twice as a kid and then just stopped altogether. There was a lot of trouble in Youngstown. He didn't want to burden people who had other things to worry about. He didn't want to burden his mom, Adele, his adoptive mom. But then after having his own son, he really decided that he cared about his past and started to look around on the internet and see if there were ways to try to seek out his birth parents. But it wasn't until he had several more kids that he really started actively trying to figure out if he could go out and find his birth mom and birth dad. My oldest was born at the, the hospital and they started asking about family history. I'm like, man, I, I don't have no answers. Then I'm like, where'd that come from? You, you just start, as I got older, I started having more questions like, where does this come from? And there was something about this moment in time that made him decide that he really wanted that information. In both Ohio, where he grew up, in Pennsylvania, where he had been adopted, the unsealing of adoption records law had gone through. We are here simply to celebrate the passage of House Bill 162, but more importantly, to celebrate the age-old question for many of us of where do we come from? Who are we? And that allowed him to file paperwork and actually be able to get the original adoption files. November 13th. It was a Monday. I'm out in the facility. And I remember just saying to myself, I wonder what's going on with this adoption paperwork. But when I got home that night, going through the mail, and the paperwork was there that night. I look on there, and it's basically what's called your original birth record. 
I see my name was John Kenneth Briggs and my mom's name was Carol Denise Briggs. You know, so that was, it was, it was like emotional. There was no information about his father on the birth certificate. And so he set about trying to find at least his mother so he could get some more questions about who he was and where he came from. How does he ultimately get in touch with Carol Denise Briggs? Oh, the magic of Facebook, Mina. (laughs) I went on Facebook, just typed the name and see what happened. There she was. Pictures of me and my family were on this little desk back here. And I looked at her picture and I looked back Mm -hmm. at mine. I said, okay, we got a shot here. He just sent her a very, I guess, simple message. Did you have a baby in 1972 in Allegheny County that you placed for adoption? And Carol, on the other end, kind of just, she said, thank God I was sitting down because this (laughs) came out of nowhere. She had thought often of the baby she had put up for adoption, but she had also, just like Dylan, had sort of been looking online occasionally and didn't really have much to work with, hadn't been able to find him. She was unmarried, never had any other kids, and was now in her 60s. And to get this message kind of knocked her socks off. So she gets the message, and they decide to talk. What happens? They hit it off right off the bat. He gets on the phone, and he says, hello, and we go through, you know, the preliminary hellos, but then the conversation picks right up. Within a minute of being on the phone, it was just like, it's a great conversation. We just start talking. At some point, I asked her, well, where are you? And she said, Youngstown. That blew me back. It turns out that he was probably less than 10 minutes away from me for the first 10 years of his life. I do remember asking, how'd you end up in Pennsylvania? Well, I explained to him, you know, that um, me and his father were not, we weren't the love story that he might have been hoping for. You know, we were young. We were young. We, I was 16, he was 18. How did you tell the father of the baby about his son? Um, I didn't tell anybody anything. Um, I didn't tell anyone anything. My mom found out I was pregnant. It was handled a little differently back then. And she sent me to this place in Pittsburgh. And I didn't come home until the day after Dylan was born. What were your emotions when he was born? Um, I remember the first time they brought him to me after he was born. I laid him on the bed and took all of his clothes off because in my mind, that was probably going to be the last time I ever saw him. You know, she explained that to me. I said, well, shoot, do I got any brothers and sisters? Because I'm like, I'm in Youngstown. I could, if she had other kids, I, know, I might know them. She said, no, I never had any other children. And she said, I never got married. I said, um, well, shoot, who's my dad? At that point, I was confident in the knowledge, this really is my son. So he asked, yeah, I got to tell him. There were probably only three people that I had ever said his father's name to in the context of my having a baby. I got pretty emotional at that point. And um, it was important for him to know who his dad was. 
And I said, well, your father's name is Sherman Smith. Your dad is a man named Sherman Smith. And when she said that, I mean, it was, I almost fell off, I almost like passed out. And um, I could kind of hear him choke up a little. And he says, well, I've known Sherman my whole life. There were so many things going through my mind. It was candy apple red. It was his real nice car. It was hooked up. I just knew that he was adopted. Guy turned around and said, I'm Sherman Smith from the running back coach at Miami University. Why I'm with you, man, I'm going to take care of you. Dylan McCullough, where did he come from? He's my guy. He coached me. Guys loved him. I know him. I'm going to treat you like you're my son. He's been my mentor for the last 28 years. I was like, I couldn't even hear anything she was saying because I'm still processing. Your dad is, is a guy by the name of Sherman Smith. I'm like, this is unbelievable to me, you know? Coming up, how breaking the news to Sherman Smith brought challenges Dylan never anticipated. Okay, Sarah, Dylan just found out that his longtime mentor, Sherman Smith, is actually his father. Even saying it now, I've read the story a million times and heard it, and it just blows my mind. What does he decide to do? So Dylan asks if it's okay if he reaches out. I think I text Carol, and I said, can I tell my dad? And she said, yeah, you can go ahead and tell him. So I text him, and I said, coach, I need to talk to you about something that's important. He started the conversation off and saying, uh, you know that I'm adopted. And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, and I've started the process to find my biological parents. Okay, man, that's great. And, you know, and hey, I, you know, I got my, my birth certificate. The other day. Hey, man, I'm, hey, that's great news to hear, man. And yeah, my biological mom from Youngstown. Hey, man, is that really? So I'm excited for him. You know, this story's building up. I found my biological mom. And then he, saw, he told me his biological mom's name. And it's like, oh, okay. And then he said, and uh, he didn't hesitate too much. Before that sunk in, he said, and I asked her who my biological father was, and she said, you. And boom. That's Wow. Dylan just dived right in with, I asked who my biological father was, and she said it was you. Silence. And then I swear, we still laugh about this now. He started talking incoherently. I couldn't even understand what he was saying. He's like, man, she never told me this. He was... He said, I know her. He said, I do know Carol. I think Dylan at the time was hoping and expecting for a joyous response from this man that he'd known for so long in the same way that it was joyous for him to learn that about a man that he so admired and a man he has even said, I didn't even think I would deserve to have this man be my father. That's how amazing I thought he was. That's not the response he got. Sherman at this point is in his mid-60s, had been married for 42 years with two kids, hadn't thought about Carol Briggs for 40 plus years, and is suddenly from zero to a 45-year-old son he never knew about. He had trouble processing and almost immediately said, you know, can I call you back? And uh, Dylan agreed, but was hurt. 
You mentioned earlier that Dylan had felt rejected not once but twice by his fathers. Was getting that reaction from Sherman or sort of lack of a reaction a really difficult experience for him? It was at first, yeah. But he started to think about the ways in which this had been sprung on Sherman and that, you know, Dylan had been missing his birth parents for his whole life. Carol had been missing this son that she knew she had and had given away her whole life. But Sherman never knew about any of it. I didn't know that I had a son out there. So this was like, I'm glad I was sitting down when he told me. So there wasn't that need or longing. There wasn't that hole that needed to be filled. Instead, it was just, I'm springing this on you without any proof or, or any warning. And so we asked to talk to Carol. And this is just great because Carol is hilarious and such a wonderful woman. After 45 years, this is probably not the icebreaker conversation that you want to have with the guy that you used to fool around with. That, hey, we've got a 45-year-old son, too. And how are you? <laughs> I remember, you know, joking with her about, you know, asking her how things were going. You married, you have kids and all that stuff. She said, no, I'm not married, don't have any kids. And I said, laughed. I said, well, yeah, evidently you have one. And we laughed about that. But other than that, we were just talking about life and, you know, growing up and, you know, just the process she went through and the decision she made to put dealing up for adoption. And, you know, but she thought that was what's, what was best for him. He was wonderful. He was wonderful. I told him that I was, you know, I'd always wanted to know that Dylan was okay and that he was a good person. And he said, I can assure you that Dylan is that and then some. He said, you, you couldn't ask for a better person to be your son. Through talking to Carol and then doing a couple searches, you know, looking things up, looking at some photos that Dylan sent him, really started realizing that he would be devastated if he was not his son, he would be heartbroken. A few hours later, he called. He said, I, I got it. I got the stories that I, I heard it, but I just need to know for sure. I said, well, let's get set up, do a paternity test. DNA tests come back, and it says 99.99% chance that Smith is the father. They're both elated about it. They both are thinking about what an incredible blessing it is. So at what point do Deland and Sherman meet up to talk about this? They decide to meet while Deland is down in Nashville on a recruiting trip, and that's where Sherman and his wife had relocated when he retired from the Seahawks. Sherman saw him parked in his car down at the end of the block for like five or ten minutes. And he's like, what's he doing down there? Like, he's supposed to be coming up to the house. Dylan had just been nervous and sitting there thinking about what he was going to say and do. He finally gets out of the car. He walks up to the house. And he opened the door and yeah, I never, I've never had anybody say this to me. He just opened his arms and he said, my son. You know, for so many years that I was around him, you know, the embrace was, hey, coach, how you doing? Hey, dealer, you know, but this is, man, my son. <laughs> I just, I never heard that before. You know, especially, you know, for somebody who, <clears throat> you know, of his stature and what he's about. Sarah, it's been about a year and a half since Dylan 
first uncovered his father's identity. What's happened since then? Oh, just magic. I mean, this family (laughs) makes me so happy. I love them so much. They're all wonderful people. They had a big family reunion around 4th of July time and connected all these different levels. And, you know, adoptive mom meeting birth mom and hitting it off. And since then, Dylan's oldest son committed to play at Miami of Ohio and plays the exact same position as Sherman Smith's son, who was a defensive back at Miami as well. And now Dylan's other kids are getting offers and recruitment opportunities to play football. And I mean, they're just the best family. Carol and Sherman were so thankful to Adele for raising him and making him into such a great man. Adele is so thankful that Dylan has this joy and blessing of finally having these people in his life. It's so special. It's a really, really special family. One thing I always think about with this story is, you know, when you're kind of joking with your friends about their parents annoying them, you don't get to choose your family, right? And in this case, he really did. Like, he saw this man and wanted to be like him and chose to have him in his life for 20-plus years and for that to then be your actual parent and for them to realize that they had not missed nearly as much time as they could have had he been meeting him for the first time at age 45 is really just an incredible, incredible blessing. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Mina. I'm Mina Kimes. This has been ESPN Daily. I will be off tomorrow, but listen for a special guest host. And I'll talk to you next week.